Thank you for downloading the IA podcast. The episode you're about to listen to was originally featured as a video on the IA's YouTube channel, IA London. But we've taken the audio and we've turned it into a podcast so that you can listen on the go. Enjoy. Welcome back to another episode of The Swift Half with Snowden. I am Christopher Snowden. Hope you're well. What a couple of weeks it's been. Life just keeps getting better and better, doesn't it? At least no one's talking about COVID anymore. So we have, as always on the show, a special guest, this time beamed in from the United States of America. He is Jason Miller, former communications advisor to Donald Trump and the CEO of the social media network, Getter. Jason, thanks very much for taking the time to speak to us. Thanks for having me. So communications advisor Donald Trump sounds quite a challenging job. Uh, How was that? Well, it was a little bit like riding on a roller coaster with no seatbelt. Some days it's going to be up, some days it's going to be down. The one thing I really learned with President Trump is that it's different from, say, communications advisor or any other politician who I'd ever worked for. And that's because President Trump doesn't think or operate like a politician. And so when everyone else is zigging, he might be sagging and doing things different. So I really viewed my role with him as to how to amplify his message to find new creative ways to get it out, more so than trying to uh, feed him certain lines or to try to program him or say you should go in this direction uh, or the other. And But after a while, I think I learned his style pretty well, and that's how I ended up going through two campaigns with him and uh, even working for him in his post-presidency. And how would you define his style? I'd say very blunt, very bold, and direct to the point. One of the things that President Trump really gets and that I've adopted for my communication strategy, whether it be uh, here with Getter and what we're doing, or even in some other advisory work that I did prior to uh, taking the helm at Getter, was that people are bombarded with so much information and from so many different uh, avenues and angles every single day. You have to be very direct. You have to cut through the clutter. You have to be memorable in everything that you do. And I would say that that's a, uh, really a, a mantra that President Trump lives by, that everything has to be big, bold, declarative. There's uh, there's not really that much room for, for nuance uh, if you want to get through and get people's attention. Well, certainly he is a fantastic communicator. I think even people who despise him would acknowledge that. I I saw actually a bit, I'm not a big follower of American politics, so I did watch a little bit of his um, speech at CPAC uh, a few days ago, and I don't know how much he's reading from notes or how much he's not. It seems to me like he's improvising a great deal of it. It's really quite a talent because you don't hear him umming and ahhing very much. He's fairly, uh, fairly witty, and a lot of that wit seems to come off the hoof i'm sure he has a few you know uh, zingers in 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 his mind but he is a, a remarkable communicator and probably in my opinion he was the king of twitter i'm still very annoyed that twitter kicked him off yeah and it's uh, you know i always tell people that uh, the most dangerous job in politics is to be president trump's teleprompter operator because he'll read from it and he has this prepared text but then he'll have the places where he wants to stop and go off and maybe he has a certain thought that he had not included in the text or he has a one-liner or a joke that he wants to insert and so then if you're gabe uh, who's the gentleman who operates the teleprompter uh, going back to 2016 and then through the white house and then afterward you got to be able to pick up and stop and and sometimes 
Sometimes that might just be a simple one-liner. Sometimes the president might go off on a tangent for upwards of five, 10 minutes and then pick back up magically uh, back to the speech. And so it's fascinating to, to be backstage and watch that in action as it's happening. Uh, but it's uh, it's also a lot of fun. I think, quite frankly, his willingness and ability to go off script, uh, while certainly the detractors will uh, beat him up a little bit for it, also what makes him fun, makes him a bit unique, and makes him stand out from other uh, figures in politics. And so what are the chances of him becoming president again in 2024? I guess this is the big question. As I say, I don't follow American politics that closely, but I know that Biden is not particularly popular. He's had the Afghanistan uh, mess. He's got the inflation, of course. He's printed a huge, huge amount of uh, uh, money. Things are not looking particularly great economically or militarily. Um, does that mean that Trump is now a shoo-in or has a novelty kind of worn off? Is he getting too old? What do you think? No, in fact, I mean, he's still uh, four or five years younger than uh, than Joe Biden. And so, yeah, but he's uh, too I, old. right? <laughs> well, right. But I'm but I'm saying that uh, President Trump seems like someone who's 20 years younger than than he actually is. Uh, so right now, if the election were tomorrow, President Trump would walk away with the Republican primary and walk away with the presidency. Uh, in a general election. That's if the election were tomorrow. Obviously, there's a long road to the coronation. A lot of different things can happen. But to put things in context for your viewers and listeners, Joe Biden is literally at the worst ever point of any president at this point in American political history. Uh, he's down at 37% approval. Uh, and that's actually with a probably a, a more positive ABC Washington Post polling, as opposed to I've seen other um, right of center pollsters who have Joe Biden even lower. And part of the reason on that is the floor, uh, we don't exactly know where that is because Joe Biden doesn't have the traditional level of support with black Americans, Hispanic Americans and others. In fact, President Trump got did record well uh, as far as with those communities this last election. So Biden could even go lower and we'll see as this uh, Ukraine mess uh, carries on uh, how much uh, Joe Biden's numbers could be impacted there too. And I suspect I know the answer to this question, but do you think this Ukraine mess would be happening if Trump was in charge still? No, and I'll tell you the reason why is because with President Trump, there was a leader in the White House who there, uh, issued a strong sense of deterrence, uh, who people were actually uh, worried that if they went and crossed America, or if they went and launched some sort of attack or attacked one of our allies, that there would be repercussions. With Joe Biden, not only is he leading from behind, but he's following around every other leader who seems to want to be the tip of the spear. Uh, for example, this weekend, President Trump was out giving speeches, talking about his vision, defending Western civilization, criticizing Putin, uh, supporting the people of Ukraine, but even talking about that more broader challenge of the head-to-head -head matchup with China, and Joe Biden took the weekend off. He was at his beach house in Delaware. Uh, I don't know if he was sleeping or I can't imagine he was he was awake all that much. Um, you know, ostensibly he was working on a State of the Union speech, which of course is coming up here later this evening in the U.S. Uh, but, but Joe Biden is, is not projecting a strong image of confidence. And quite frankly, I think Putin made his decision to go to Ukraine when he saw Biden make his decision, decision to have the a disastrous withdrawal from Afghanistan. So Trump wouldn't have withdrawn from Afghanistan, you don't think? Well, he no, he and President Trump said he would withdraw. But very simply, first, you get out all of the U.S. citizens and all of the 
uh, dependents, the people in Afghanistan who've been working for us for the better part of 20 years, uh, people who would most definitely be in the crosshairs by the Taliban if they were captured afterwards. So first you get them out, then you go and get out all of your key sensitive military equipment, your files, uh, the updated machinery, the things like that. And then at, uh, at the final, at the end, then you get out your, the rest of your troops. But what you don't do is get the troops out first, then leave the people behind. But all during that process, you send a very clear message uh, to the Taliban that if you mess with any of our people on the way out, we're going to drop a bomb on you. And in fact, President Trump, I know, told the leader of the Taliban when he was talking to him and making some similar type comments when he was president of the United States, uh, he informed the leader of the Taliban exactly where that leader was at that moment. And President Trump said, we know exactly where you are. And if you attack our people and mess with them, there's going to be hell to pay. And guess what? Uh, they didn't attack because they knew there'd be a big, huge bomb with their name written all over it, dropping right on their head. Yeah, I think the argument that um, Trump was kind of unpredictable and therefore Putin wouldn't want to do anything too risky is, is you know, hold, holds up. But we are where we are. Uh, we have got this appalling mess now. Uh, it feels to me, at least, as if we you know, the world has never been closer to nuclear war, really. You know, the, the Cuban Missile Crisis is the obvious parallel. It seems to me even more dangerous than that at the moment. So what do you think Biden should be doing? Uh, indeed, what should, the, what should Europe be doing at this point? Well, uh, so that's a great question because what we're heading toward next is a real humanitarian crisis in the way that we've never seen as far as not in the modern era. And what I mean by that is we have this uh, some 40 mile long convoy um, that is heading towards uh, Kyiv uh, and a, a couple of other cities and if they decide to essentially see, lay siege to the city and restrict that, then you're going to have millions of people who are effectively uh, could be without power, without food, without water, and it could be just a, a complete disaster. So that's going to really complicate things. I do think that um, that it was about time that Biden enacted the SWIFT sanctions, although they went partially, they didn't go all the way. But the biggest thing Biden needs to be doing right now is get ener American energy production back going so we're not paying uh, the Russians and the Russian oligarchs billions of dollars every single day to go and import energy. Uh, and that's whether it be to the U.S. Uh, or to our allies in, in Central and Western Europe. I think that's a key right now. Uh, but there's no, for the purposes of, of today in our conversation, there's no easy fix as it comes to Ukraine, because obviously I think uh, uh, putting up a no-fly zone would lead us right to, uh, barreling towards war. Uh, I do think that there need to be uh, additional talks to see if there is a diplomatic solution with this. And I, I would say also uh, the rest of the world is starting to rise up and band together and say, hey, Putin, uh, you got to knock this off. This is a little bit too crazy. And I'm not sure if Putin quite anticipated uh, the global backlash that we're starting to see. Yeah, I think that's probably right. I also think he probably thought it was going to be easier to, to invade Ukraine than it's proven to be. Uh, do you share the view that Putin is kind of losing it mentally, that he's been very um, you know, clear-headed and Machiavellian for you know, the last 20 odd years, however long it's been, uh, he's been president. But now some people are saying that he's been kind of uh, sheltered from the country. He's, you know, he's paranoid about COVID, won't let people come near him. And he's just over the course of the last year or two developed a lot of paranoid, paranoid delusions. You think there's any truth in that? Then that explains what's going on. 
I don't know. Uh, that seems like it'd be a pretty easy knock uh, if you're a detractor of Putin's. Uh, I'm not saying that I'm a fan, uh, but I, I don't have the frame of reference of having interacted with him uh, in recent times or ever. Uh, so I can't really speak to, uh, to where that is. It seems like a pretty easy criticism to hurl um, that it's a little tough to, to go and punch back from. I think your earlier comment, though, was spot on in the fact that Putin clearly didn't anticipate the level of backlash that he was going to get from the Ukrainian people. And boy, if there was ever any question as to the toughness of Ukrainians, they have shown that they are some very tough people and willing to pick up the, their arms and go and fight. And I've, I've never seen anything like it uh, in the modern era. Uh, but again, where it's going to become complicated is just the sheer numbers, as Putin seems uh, pretty hell-bent on capturing the entire country. But the, the one thing that I would say here is that Right now, as we're following this news story, we're kind of following it on a, a linear, sequential, day-by-day -day basis. Here are the troops. Where might he advance? What's going on? I think what the question that uh, isn't completely being answered right now or that people aren't really focusing on is what is Putin's endgame? Is Ukraine simply his endgame? Is it recapturing all of the former Soviet bloc countries? Is that truly his endgame? And the other thing, too, is as we talk about China, which, in my opinion, is the, the true existential threat, uh, Putin has a, well, I would have said a first-tier military, uh, but now some of that's being a little bit questioned is uh, they're having some of the miscalculations. But because of the nukes, let's say they have a first-tier uh, military, but a third-tier checkbook. Putin can't afford to keep this going indefinitely, but he clearly has some kind of endgame that I don't think the West has done a very good job of analyzing. But China is watching all of this and gauging the reaction for what it would look like if they then go and recapture Taiwan uh, and as they continue their march. And especially when you think of the uh, the massive percentage of the world's semiconductors that are on Taiwan, you got to think it's a matter of when, not if, um, she makes that move on the island nation. So you know, you don't think that the, the West's kind of approach to this, I mean, I think in, in Europe, there's a feeling that a lot of the countries, including the European Union, actually have done more than people thought they would in terms of poking the Russian bear and sending in, uh, you know, we're not having this no-fly zone. I should say, by the way, we're recording this on, on Tuesday, the 1st of March. It'll come out on, on the Thursday, so uh, bits of this might already be obsolete. Um, but, you know, the, the, um, the UK, the EU, other countries have provided quite a lot of military support for Ukraine in a way that not everybody expected. Um, do you think that that might have put China off a bit, or you think that the fact that we, we're not going fully to war with Ukraine is, is given China more resolve to take Taiwan? No, quite frankly, I think that uh, I would agree with you. I'd say that Europe has stepped up much more than I thought they would, especially if you just look at where we are now compared to a couple of weeks ago. I mean, just take Germany alone, for example. The fact that they're upping their defense spending now to up over 2%, uh, which, by the way, to be clear, that means that Germany will be spending more money on their military than Russia will. People forget that Russia's economy is uh, effectively the size of New York State. Uh, so it's, it truly is a uh, in apples and oranges when you talk about the scale of the economy. But I think this is a big shot across the bow to China uh, that the Western world will step up on threats of aggression like this. And ultimately, this, this type of economic backlash will be probably a stronger deterrent to China with regard to taking Taiwan than potentially any uh, kinetic military confrontation uh, that could be proposed. Yeah, let's talk now about uh, Geta, um, which I'm not familiar with. I use Twitter quite a lot. Um, and I mean, one of the things perhaps 
I would say there's a, a bit of a challenge to Trump getting reelected as he hasn't got that platform anymore anymore. I know he's setting up, I think, his, his, his own. Um, so tell, tell me about um, about Getter and why he decided to set it up and how it's going. Absolutely. Well, as I mentioned earlier, I worked for President Trump on both his 2016 and 2020 campaigns. And the thing that I learned in 2020 was that we have to have alternative social media platforms so that no select group of Silicon Valley billionaires can play judge, jury, and executioner with our free speech rights. And whether it be the sentencing to digital jail of people who dared to uh, say that the virus came from a lab in Wuhan, or whether it be the censorship of the Hunter Biden laptop story, uh, or even the ultimate deplatforming of a sitting president of the United States, it's clear that we need to have more decentralization, more independence with regard to social media. And so in July of 2021, I launched Getter, and which is a all-in-one free speech platform that is most closely a competitor to Twitter. And we surged, gaining over a million people in just three days. We're now, uh, what are we, uh, eight months later, we're now at 5 million users globally, with about half of those users in the US and half around the rest of the world. Uh, so we've taken off like a rocket ship, the fastest growing social media platform in history. And not only do we have the, essentially the, the microblog, which competes against, uh, say, Twitter and Facebook, we just launched Vision, which is our short video competitor to TikTok and Instagram Reels. We just launched that this past week. And where we're going this summer, we're launching GetterPay, which will be our payment platform that will take on Apple Pay and Alipay and Google Pay. But we're going to have a two-coin crypto ecosystem in a marketplace that we're going to launch on that. So we have some pretty big plans. And so whether freedom of speech, freedom of expression, and freedom of controlling your own financial destiny. And so this is a, it's a very fun project. I mean, I, I guess the thing that deters me from using Getter or indeed any alternative to Twitter is something you'll be very familiar with, of course, is, is the network effects, network effects, um, which is that unless I actually get kicked off Twitter myself or hundreds of people that I really like also get kicked off, I don't have any really self-interested reason to get away from it. And this is, of course, the problem with Facebook and, and, and similar um, similar social media media apps isn't that a constraint on uh, on what you're doing um, unless you get to a tipping point where everybody just gets sick of of Twitter. No, oh, because the the drumbeat, the steady drip 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 of Twitter and Facebook and. Uh, Instagram and YouTube kicking people off continues. And so literally uh, the best marketing tool that we have is when those platforms will go through and start kicking people off. And to paraphrase the movie, It's a Wonderful Life, I always tell people that every time one of the big tech platforms uh, kicks off another one of their users, another getter angel gets its wings. They come to our platform. We're very clearly the uh, the best in class when it comes to the alternative platforms and the, the user interface and the functionality. And so we're a natural destination point. But in addition to that, also adding big users and the type of people who come and uh, join the platform is really helpful. So, for example, um, uh, when, by the time this show airs, it'll be public knowledge that Russell Brand, for example, has joined Getter. Obviously, is a, a huge international name, someone who's big in the UK, someone who's big in the US. And so we're having these people who aren't even necessarily politics first type people who are joining the platform, maybe they have a strong point of view, and they realize that we need to have more options when it comes to social media. There's their new audiences that they can expose their brand to. Uh, 
pun intended, uh, and that they can get more recognition and people watching them and get new fans all around the world. Uh, so for example, when I was in London this past week and had lunch with Matt Letizia, uh, he's on the platform, obviously the English footballer legend. Uh, so we're getting a lot of people coming from sports and entertainment who are joining Getter said, you know what, we don't need to wait until we're kicked off. Let's go and go somewhere where we know that we're not going to have the political uh, discrimination. It seems to me that what, what's needed is an app whereby you can type out your message and it automatically goes to Twitter and to Getter and to anybody else doing the same thing. That's not possible at the moment, right? Uh, actually, when you say that, we have it open to a couple thousand people right now in the beta testing, but we're, uh, when you post on Getter, it also shows up on Twitter, so that way you hit that audience. In fact, they're turning it on for me today, so I'll be able to do that, and my guys tell me we're about two weeks away from opening that up to everyone, and so once you have that, then say so you have an audience or you have followers uh, who are back on Twitter, you're not going to have to go back again. You can just stay on Getter, and post on Getter, and just know that it's going to repost over there. And so the so to your point, we're, we're getting closer to it. Ah, well, that would be a game changer, I think, if you can get that going. And as long as Twitter doesn't block it or whatever, because I'm, I'm not. So actually, we um, uh, we actually have approval from Twitter on that. Uh, oh, really? And so it's uh, there's a review on it. I believe it's every six months or every year. Uh, but we do have uh, we do have a formal approval on that. Um, and so we'll be charging ahead. Oh, well, that would be very interesting. I'm not a tech person, but somebody was saying to me the other day that there's something you can use to put your videos on YouTube, but also on Odyssey or something else it was, it was called. Um, and that, that's a good way of um, addressing what is a really serious problem, which is you know social media, big tech censorship. My solution to it, um, for what it's worth, tell me what you think of this, is that there's this, always this discussion about, you know, who is actually publishing this stuff? Is it the individual with the mobile phone in the hand or is it Twitter or Facebook or what have you? And therefore, who should be legally liable when, when, when there are threats to kill or libel and, and what, all the rest of it? Um, now, I tend to think that these guys are no more publishers than the people who produce, you know, typewriters or paper or something. Right. Uh, and it should be the the user, the, 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 the individual who is liable for this stuff. But I think maybe the way to deal with this endemic big tech censorship, and of course you're right that it's, it comes from a, a left-wing political persuasion as a rule, is to say that, look, you big tech companies, you have immunity from prosecution from what people say on your platforms, that's on them. But the quid pro quo for that, the condition for that, is that you can't just kick anybody off unless they are actually breaking the law, you know? Well, what I think on that, that we're out of the, the, the slight uh, distinction or the slight difference is, of course, every platform is going to have their terms of service, uh, which is essentially their, their uh, binding uh, agreement with the user for what you have to do to abide by that. Um, sometimes that's uh, purely based on legality. Sometimes that's based on uh, one country's constitution. Of course, different countries have, have different laws and policies. Here's where I think we can have a happy medium on this is I do think that platforms should be protected because ultimately they're not supposed to be publishers. We want to encourage and foster the debate in this online town square. However, what we can't have is political discrimination, picking who gets free speech rights and, and who doesn't. And so, for example, if you have the, the tech company 
coming in saying, well, we like this person's point of view, so they can say this, but this person has a, a different political point of view, so they're not allowed to have the same rights. That's where I think you should lose your, uh, essentially your platform status and be viewed as a publisher, because then you're using your opinion, you're editorializing uh, what content you allow and don't uh, don't allow. That has nothing to do with terms of service. Now, or if you want to go put in your terms of service and say, hey, we're a no, we are a left-wing only outlet. Uh, we don't want any part of uh, uh, platform protection. We're essentially a publisher. You can post with us um, if you know that, that we're left-wing and we're not trying to take any of that status. Uh, that's also their choice. Yeah, I don't think I'd even do that. I wouldn't even let them make their own terms of service. If they're big international publishers, I'd just say, look, free speech. Yeah, you got to follow the, the laws of, of, of the land. But apart from that, you should let people say anything. Otherwise, I think they'd get around it in various ways you know well you know that the one thing on that though is there uh, are for example uh, so for example with getter uh, you're not allowed to post pornography uh, that is uh, even if that's legally permissible uh, in the united states we don't allow that because that's not something that our community wants um, twitter you can go to twitter and there's full-on pornography um, and they they make no bones about that but there will be distinctions like that where it might something might be legally permissible but it's not something that the community wants to have that's a fair point. I haven't really seen any pornography on Twitter, so it's obviously I'm following following the wrong people. Um, Jason, um, I don't know how much you know about the Institute of Economic Affairs, um, but we are a free market think tank set up in the 1950s. We don't have any political allegiances. We don't particularly get involved with, with culture wars and that kind of thing. We're interested in economics. We really believe that if people were just taught the basics of economics, then the world would be a significantly better place. And we, 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 we try to do that and bring free market angles um, to, to pressing you know, policy problems of the day. Um, and so we can usually see good things in parties on the left and the right. Um, what is it? I mean, we, we, I think it's fair to say people at the IA have mixed feelings about, about Donald Trump, about right-wing populism, if you want to call it that, about the Republicans, and indeed about the, the conservatives in the UK. Um, what would your cell be uh, to people like us um, for your kind of political um, ideology, for want of a better word? Well, if you fundamentally believe in free speech and you think that we should have a smaller, less intrusive government, that we need to foster conversation and have open lines of dialogue, regardless of ideology or nationality uh, or uh, party affiliation, then I think Getter is a great place to be. I think it's a rapidly growing community. I think it's a passionate community where we've seen direct uh, comparisons, say, for example, the, um, the Daily Mail, which has joined Getter, uh, is obviously as well as being on Twitter, has had significantly higher engagement levels on Getter than on Twitter. So I think, number one, it can expose your ideas to people all around the world, uh, not just around the country, but around the world. And I think you can have a seat at a table for a very passionate audience. I think that's one important point that we start to look at. The other thing, too, is, again, with big tech continuing to put advocacy at the front of their priorities list, it's only a matter of time until you find yourselves on the wrong side of big tech and where they want to go uh, with some of their, their issues of debate and world forming. And so I think having Getter is a smart plan to start building your audience. So when that time comes with the big tech platforms, then you can do that. But the other thing, too, is we start looking through 
the abilities that we'll have starting in, in well, really starting like April or May, the abilities to monetize or raise funds from the site, uh, the way that we are live streaming. So for example, you have conferences or even the program that you're doing right now to be able to live stream that to an audience all around the world in, a, in another venue. Uh, but then even as we go into the short video format uh, and also with our crypto ecosystem that we're unveiling, having an all-in-one free speech platform is really quite desirable. It's interesting you mentioned the Daily Mail there. Just reminding me that um, Wikipedia, I don't know if you're aware of this, you're not allowed to post links to the Daily Mail on Wikipedia. It is not considered to be a credible source. You can really? post links to like, yeah, not at all. You, 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 it just doesn't, they just don't accept it. Um, so you can post you know, an article from the Morning Star, for example, which is the communist daily paper in the UK, but you can't use the Daily Mail. Now, the Daily Mail is not to everybody's cup of tea. I accept that. But you know, it, they, they don't lie any more or any less than any other newspaper. They have their angles and they'll cover some stories that other newspapers won't cover. It's very unpopular with, with people on the left in this country, partly because it's so successful and so popular. And it's a, a global brand as well as a, a British brand. But yeah, they, they don't accept it as a credible source. I mean, the idea that Wikipedia you know, should decide what a credible source is at all. It's kind of ironic, I think, because um, there's so much nonsense on there. But I, again, I guess it comes to to your point about you know these these organisations. A lot of them started off with the best of intentions, and Twitter started off with a very strong commitment to free speech, and it's just unfortunately been been eroded, hasn't it? Yeah, and that's one of the, the things that's so frustrating is who elected all of these fact checkers, who elected uh, Twitter or Facebook or, or YouTube. And I always tell my friends in the U.S., hey, if you're frustrated that these Silicon Valley tech oligarchs are picking winners and losers in the free speech debate, and you're like, why are these rich guys in California telling us what we can and can't say? Imagine you live in the U.K. or India or excuse me, or Japan or any of these other countries. And you're like, why are the Americans telling us what we can and can't say? Why are they determining all of our free speech rights? Absolutely right. Uh, well, we're coming up to the uh, to the end of uh, end of our time, Jason. It's uh, very interested to hear from you. Um, I will be checking out Getter, um, for, apart from anything else, to prepare myself for the inevitable day when I get kicked off Twitter for, for some minor reflection. <laughs> so I'll, uh, I'll wish you all the best of it. Um, and thanks very much for joining us. Thank you thanks very much to you at home for watching. It's been another episode of the Swift Half with Snowden. Be back as ever in a couple of weeks, speaking to who knows who. Um, hope you'll join us then. Thank you very much. Uh, in particular, if you are a donor to the IA, if you'd like to join their ranks, you can go to iea.org.uk slash donate, or indeed you can go to patreon.com slash IA London. Um, but until then, until the Thursday after next, uh, I wish you well. I hope the bomb doesn't fall and goodbye.